Let's continue our worship. We're going to read the scripture. This is from Mark 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and set, it, uh, set in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea and on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in this teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path. Where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm Chris. I'm glad you're with us today. Uh, I just want you to know that you have been uh, prayed for this week. Uh, we, we get together Friday nights and pray, and man, we just went after it, praying for you uh, this week. So I just, I just want you to know that, man. Um, thank you for with us. We are in the middle of a season called Lent, uh, which is not the stuff that just comes out of your dryer, like I thought when you were growing up. Um, it's a very old season. Uh, Christians have been participating in for thousands of years, thousands of years. Uh, We see Christians observing this as early as 400 A.D. We have writings from St. Augustine about fasting during the season of Lent. Uh, And it's this 40-day season that mimics Jesus' 40 days of fasting in the wilderness when when we are called to remember uh, that the world is not as it ought to be. Heartbreak, violence, rage, injustice, bloodshed has marked humanity since the beginning and still marks it today, does it not? And just like our Foods need body. I'm sorry, oops. Dyslexia is a real thing, y'all. Real. Just like our bodies need food, there we go, we remember that the soul of man uh, needs sustaining power. And all of us, all of us, shrivel up like dried out fruit in the sun without the nearness of God. So we remember uh, 
our ultimate, humanity's ultimate inability to provide any sense of lasting justice and peace in the world, even in our own hearts, right? We acknowledge, so really popular stuff, right? We acknowledge our own contribution to the mass, and we address our struggle that you're in, even if you don't know it. We're in, we're, everyone is in this struggle right here to really believe that God knows more than you when it comes to human flourishing. All of us are in that struggle, whether you acknowledge it or not. So Lent, the word itself, just is an old Dutch word. It means spring season. Uh, so it comes to us at the turning of the seasons, from winter to spring. The landscape around you uh, is about to overflow with color and good smells and flowers and green and a whole lot of pollen, right? The landscape itself is going to start talking to us, y'all, if we have ears to hear it. And it's going to be saying, even after the darkest, coldest season of the year, God can and will bring new life. God is saying he can transform your heart just like the landscape around you is about to transform. Right now, the landscape looks, looks pretty dead, right? The grass is still kind of brown. The trees, most of the trees don't have leaves on them. In fact, you could walk up to a tree and say, that tree's dead. That tree's dead, isn't it? No leaves on it, no green. And, and yet, what's about to happen? That thing's about to explode into life. And what we're trying to say is we're, this, the landscape around you, is a visual of what God longs to do in the interior of your life. Do you have ears to hear that? Can we acknowledge that some of us are in seasons of, of wilderness and desert and winter and cold, and that our hearts are just not responding to the things that they used to respond to? You used to be a compassionate person. Now you're a curmudgeon. <gasps> Thank you. It's a good word. Let's make that the word of the day, curmudgeon. Yeah. Can we acknowledge things like that in our own hearts, or do we skirt around the issues? Can we acknowledge places that our relationships are literally drying up on the vine? And can we then pivot our attention to the maker of all heaven and earth and say, God, can you bring new life again? Jesus, can you bring new meaning and color and joy into a dry and barren place, Lord? What we're saying in this season is we're calling our hearts to a dependency on the creator of the universe to do what only he can do, revive the, the, the vibrancy of your soul. God's trying to tell you something with the landscape around you right now. Just like winter is turning to spring, he longs to bring life to the dead places of your soul. Man, come on, man. He wants to bring, you know the old dry bones thing? Well, these dry bones led, man, God wants to bring life to the dry places, man. Bring order and light to the darkness and the chaos like he did over the waters in Genesis. All of, all of these all of these images are getting at an internal, an internal quality of life that we are all locked out of without the spirit of God. In Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis does a wonderful job capturing our imagination, creating a world in which a witch has cursed the land and the land is in eternal winter, stuck in barrenness. The land was cursed, the Chronicles of Narnia, by the white witch. And in fact, what they said was, it's always winter, but never Christmas, a child's worst nightmare. And it's not until Aslan, the Christ figure, is on the move that the ice begins to melt and the green begins to come back into the landscape, right? So 
You don't have to read much of the Gospels before you realize Jesus was really fond of agri agricultural language. Today, um, we read a parable about seeds being sown, didn't we, uh, on different soils. This, that is just one example of the many used in the Bible of agricultural language, reaping and sowing, threshing wheat, harvesting crops, drought and rain, all these things used extensively almost all, on, you know, just all over the Bible, right? Because in, this is an agricultural um, a culture that the Bible's coming to, people living off the land, right? One of the problems with agricultural language in our day is today, in, modern, in a modern specialized society, right, we are totally out of touch with the agricultural symbols and implications of things like the turning of the seasons or of sowing and reaping. This is language that we just don't jive with anymore because we don't relate to it, right? When spring comes to us today, we think, oh, lovely, flowers are going to start to bloom, or we start back, you know, closing all the windows and taking copious amounts of Claritin, right? <laughs> Agricultural societies knew that spring wasn't time to smell the roses. Agricultural societies knew that spring was time to till the soil. Spring was time to remove the old growth if they were going to eat. It was time to break up the hardened ground from the winter so that new things can grow. They knew the land would not produce fruit as it was. It needed to be cultivated, right? It needed to be invested in, attended to. The land itself needed time and energy and sweat. It's part of the curse in Genesis 3, uh, 17, right? Thorns and thistles are now going to grow. And now it's going to be by the sweat of your brow that you uh, get food from the land. Agricultural, agricultural societies feel that in the, in the spring season. So Lent comes to us in the spring, and the overlap should be clear, guys. Just like there are seasons that the earth require higher intensity and effort and pushing if we are going to reap the benefits, so too there are seasons in your soul that will require a higher level of intensity and pushing and effort. Can we hear this in a Protestant, grace-saturated society? Can we hear that there's times where you're going to have to put forth some effort to follow Jesus? Or does our grace flag go up and say, it's all by grace. All by, you can't, can't earn it. Look, grace is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. That's what Dallas Willard says. You can't earn grace, but it's not opposed to effort. Listen, if you intend to follow Jesus, it is going to take all of your effort, guys. You're going to have to push sometimes. There are going to be seasons where you're just going to feel like this wilderness and barren, and he is going to say, obey me in the, in the desert time too. You're not, there will be times in your, can, guys, there will be times in your Christian walk where every incentive for obedience will be removed. Amen. You will not understand what God is doing. Will you in those times put one foot after the other and say, I'm going to obey you even when I can't feel the satisfaction and the benefits of that obedience even now in, in my heart and life? There are times like this, guys. Can I do you a favor right now? As, a, as someone who's been a Christian a long time, maybe you have too. There's going to be times where you look around in the, in the universe. It will seem to all of your senses that God has forsaken the universe. What are you going to do? Your options are in that moment to throw your hands up and say, I knew it was all a sham. I'm out. Or, or to obey even in the wilderness, even in the dry seasons, even in the winter. One of the calls of Lent is to stop neglecting your soul. You have a soul. Or maybe, actually, you are a soul, and you have a body, right? Like, what has it, right? And if you don't routinely do some cultivating in the unseen places of your heart and life, if you don't routinely do some spiritual weeding, as it were, 
digging up those nagging thorns and thistles. It, listen, it will choke out the possibility of what we read today, the word. Listen, God, you got to listen to the Bible, y'all. It will choke out the possibility of the word to prove fruitful. Does the word of God seem fruitful to you? And if it doesn't, may it be more of a reflection of the soil of your heart and less reflection of the potency of God's word. Because apparently, according to the scriptures, God's word will not return to him void. It will do as he intends it every single time. If the word of God seems dead to you, I would like to suggest to you there's some spiritual weeding you need to do in your heart and soul. And we're gonna get, that's what we're going to get in today. If you garden, you know that now is the time, man. If you have a little garden in your backyard, my wife is continually killing the grass that I have tried so hard to produce and putting another garden here, another raised bed here, right? I mean, I have, right now I have tarps just laying, killing all my lovely grass that I've tried. You know what I'm talking about, man. I try to get it. You know, anyone have a nice fescue yard so green? Like, I can't. My neighbor has a nice fescue yard. I look at him. I'm just, how does he do it? All year long, super green. Anyway, she's always making gardens, okay? And you know, if you're a gardener, that now is the time to turn over the soil, now is the time to put in the fertilizer to rip up all the wild growth that took root in the winter season. And likewise, to those who have ears to hear, I think God is saying to you right now, stand up, brother. Stand up, sister, and start cultivating the ground of your heart. I think to those who have ears to hear, God would say, there's, there's work to do. Huh? Apparently, According to Jesus, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Look at me. Quit waiting for it to get easy. Huh? Quit waiting for it to feel the same as it did 15 years ago with God. Behold, I, I am doing a new thing. And if you need a sign from God, can I just, let me just give it to you. Let's give it to him right here. Here's your sign from God. There it is. If you're waiting for a sign, this is it. Start cultivating your soul. Like, come on, man. Stand up, brother. Stand up, sister. Like, get in that word, man. Now's the time, man. Push. Why are we so opposed to this idea that it requires our effort to do this Christian walk thing? It got, it's going to require everything you got, man. If you're going to be in it for the long haul, Lent is a time not only for us to rub the spiritual sleep out of our eyes, but take responsibility over the state of your life. Look at me, man. I love you. I love you. I know it gets hard. I know it feels overwhelming. I know the kids are driving you crazy. I know things seem impossible. I get it. However, at some point, you have to quit blaming your spouse. You have to quit blaming your work. You have to quit blaming your kids or your parents and make your life about something. No one's going to do that for you. I just want to beg you, as a little dude up here behind a pulpit, make your life about something more beautiful, more eternal, more lasting than yourself. Amen. I, just, I mean, I'll just, I just beg you, please. Like, you're missing out, right? Now's the time. Now's the day. Get on your knees, man. Get out the book. Let's do it. So this picture has always struck with me. We're going to get onto the scripture, right? But this picture has always stuck with me. Of God, the eternal creator being, okay, made all heaven and earth, okay, swimming down to the bottom, the depths of the ocean, miles under the surface, in the dark deep of the ocean, and grabbing you out of the depths, bringing you up to the shallows, right? Knocking all the barnacles off your eyeballs. You, got bar you know, can't see anything, right? CPR, you know, just resuscitates you with the breath of his mouth, huh? And here you are, made alive again, laying in two feet of water, 
given a second chance to life, right? You're breathing air again for the first time, and you're freaking out that you're about to drown. Can I just say to you, put your feet down like he's done all the work. You can't meet him in the middle if you tried, okay? He has done all the heavy lifting. Put your feet down. Start walking. Are we chatting? Is this making sense, right? Grace. Can't earn it. Never can earn it. Not opposed to effort, right? You can't earn anything with God. That's ridiculous. But he's given you everything in his son. Now stand up and start walking. Come on. Can we chat like this? You just put one foot in front of another, trust him enough to, all right? Isaiah 43, 19, behold, I'm doing a new thing right now. Now it springs up. Huh? Do you not perceive it? He says, I will make a way in the wilderness. And what? Rivers in the desert. God's going to do the heavy lifting, friend. He's going to make the way. But he will, he's going to make a way in the wilderness. But he will not force you to walk down that path. That's up to you. I, I want to encourage you. The Bible's going to talk about a kind of death to self that's necessary to receive God's life. And we'd be silly to think that process is awesome. Right? But the payoffs is rivers, sustenance, life-giving resources in the midst of what? Dry and weary land. Desert wasteland. So last week we talked about the outward thrust of fasting. This week I want to talk about the inward thrust of fasting. Last week was how Christian fasting is asking God to intervene in the overwhelming circumstances for you and others. This week is how Christian fasting is a form of internal cultivation of the soil of your soul. Okay? Fasting. So super popular, right? Fasting, right? Up to this point, um, we've been talking about fasting primarily from food. And I've invited everyone who's crazy enough to join me to fast uh, over for a 24-hour period during the week. Right? Maybe some of you have done it. I don't know. I, you, I, you're kind of crazy if you are. I feel like I'm crazy for doing it, right? But maybe if you've joined me, you've felt some benefits of this. I don't know if you have. But many of you, no matter how much we talk about fasting from food or how it catalyzes spiritual hunger or it declares dependency on God, right? We could even talk about the physical benefits of fasting, of intermittent fasting. You can find article after article about the physical benefits of intermittent fasting, articles, right? We could talk about that all day long, but you are not going to fast from food. I get it, okay? And you might have like, you know, legitimate medical reasons or not, but I get it. It's okay. Today is for you because we are going to broaden out the things that you can potentially fast from, okay? So I want to start by saying this. We're going to get into it this way. And if you've been with us for years and years and years, you're going to recognize a lot of this language. There are good things in your life. Good things. Good things. Things that are not sin. Okay, that are nonetheless the primary reason you are stuck in your spiritual life. There are good things in your life that are the reason you are not growing as a Christian. A lot of people get stuck here in their spiritual maturity because they only think it's blatant sins that are the obstacles. So, so they aren't addicted to porn or drugs. They don't drink too much. You know, they don't curse like too much. You know, uh, little road rage. You know, but not too much. But who doesn't do that, right? Everyone does that. But they don't even watch R-rated movies. Like, how much more spiritual can you get, huh, right? And so, and so it's because you don't realize that there are things that are not sins that are effectively strangling your spiritual life unto death. That, that are the reason you are not growing and maturing as a Christian. So in Hebrews 12, 1, it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Oh, and the sin, which clings so closely. And let us run, man. This kind of language is all throughout the New Testament. This kind of running, striving, 
everything I've got. What do you think God means when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your strength? Of course there's straining, right? Of course there's pushing. But the point of this verse is that there's all sorts of things. There's every weight and there's sin. There's all sorts of things that are going to stop you from going as a Christian, right? So 1 Corinthians 6.12 says this. This is going to get more specific for us, okay? It's going to tease it out for us. So all things are lawful for me, but all, but all things are not all things are helpful, right? All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated. You might, your version might say enslaved by anything. He says, look, food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for the food, right? And God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Okay, so two things he brings up here. What does he bring up? Sex and food. Good things. Ain't no one gonna say amen. Ain't no one gonna say, well, we're too spiritual to say amen to that. Okay, cool. Sex and food. Good things. Y'all, God-given things. He made the stuff, okay? God-given things. But when they get out of their God-established boundaries, they wreak havoc in our lives. And they wreak havoc in the lives around you, like total destruction, right? Good, God-given things, when elevated to ultimate places in our hearts, do the opposite of what they were created to do. They move from a place of service and life to a place of oppression and death. So, sex. Right? When, it grow, when your sexual appetite grows outside its God-given boundaries, it no longer serves you to establish intimacy and maintain love and commitment in your relationship. When sex is made an ultimate thing, when it goes outside those boundaries, it ruins intimacy in relationships. It's the opposite of what was created to do. Huh? It destroys them. Food, instead of sustaining and strengthening, can become an oppressive tyrant that you bow before. So this is why I've always loved the quote, uh, which I can't remember where I heard this first. Appetites make wonderful servants, but they make horrible, oppressive masters. Hmm? Your appetites, your appetites, almost all of them are neutral. Neutral. But they either turn for good or bad, depending on who's driving them and the prominent place they take in your heart. When we allow God to show us how the human machine runs, our appetites, y'all, all of them begin to echo the glory of God in all their created goodness. Is that make, stretching anyone a little bit? Your appetite for sex could glorify God and echo his created goodness? Your appetite for food? Your appetite for uh, leisure? We, these are instinctual things we all have. And when they are under the hand of God, they echo his glory for your joy and his glory, huh? in our lives and the lives of those around us. But when we begin to call the tune, when we begin to, uh, in our own short-sighted way, and, and yield to our desires and our instincts in unhealthy ways, you, they're going to destroy you. Now, most of us know that by experience. We, we've been in places in our hearts and lives where our appetites, where our desires have destroyed us, right? Because if you're anything like me, I struggle to enjoy something without becoming obsessed with it. All right? Lewis, again, here, helps our imagination. He likens our instincts, our desires, our appetites. Uh, so, so sex, food, entertainment, rest, pleasure, games, leisure. All these are instinctual appetites every human has, right? We, we want to rest. We want to work. We want to procreate. Okay, we want to, okay. He says all of those things are like keys on a piano. Keys on a piano. 
And when we submit those desires to God's wisdom, they become an orchestra when played skillfully. They fit together beautifully to your delight, to the delight of all those around you, right, for God's glory. But when we call the tune, our desires and instincts become chaotic, disordered, and they create dissonance. Do you know what dissonance is? It's two really close notes. It creates that wow, 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 really, ugh, like gets in your head, gives you a little headache, right? Right? When, when we are in charge and we're calling the shots on our appetites and instincts and desires, they create dissonance and conflict in our lives, not harmony, okay? And I think we all know what that is like. Let me give you another picture that might help you when you start thinking about your desires, which are neutral, and who's steering them and how they become. Our appetites and desires, when they function how God intends them to function, can be likened to a river. I love this because I was hanging out with some friends, and they were just telling me they use the same language with their young boys to help them understand these things. Your, your appetites and, and desires are like a river. What is the purpose of a river? Well, it, I mean, well, you have purpose. I mean, you know, whatever, it's running through the ocean. What is the consequence of a river in a desert? Well, it brings life. Go, go to a, a valley with a river in it in the middle of the desert. What are you going to see? I mean, you're going to see beautiful green trees, life flourishing, wildlife coming to it to nourish themselves, right? Rivers bring life, man. Your appetites are made to bring life to you, all of them. And they were made to bring glory to God when they're under his rule and reign, right? When we read Isaiah 50, uh, 43, 19, which is I'm doing a new thing on deserts, you know, rivers in the desert, you know, Check out this picture. If you look at Google Earth over northeast Africa, uh, there is this crazy green line right in the middle. You know what that is? Anyone? It's the Nile. It's the Nile River. What a beautiful picture of what your appetites are intended to function, how your appetites are intended to function in your life for you and for others. They're, they're made to bring life. They're made to bring sustenance, right? God gave our desires and appetites for our flourishing, for our joy and his glory. Um, food, y'all think about it. Okay, let's just get in the headset, the mindset. God made everything, okay? Let's, let's say we all believe that. You know, it's a big room. I don't know. We all believe it. So if he made everything, then he, he made food taste good. He didn't have to do that. He made sex. He made entertainment. He made sleep feel good. He didn't have to do that. But when a river, some, a good thing, when a river overflows its boundaries, think of a flash flood in a valley. When, when, a, when a river begins to swell and become unmanageable and out of control, what does it do? Well, it causes death and destruction to everyone and everything in its path. When your desires for things, good things, grow to unhealthy, unmanageable place, they wreak havoc in your life. So I want you to think about it. I have a picture, but I want you to hold on, hold on a second. Visualize. A huge, raging, flooding river just consuming bridges and trees and every wild animal in its, in its path. This is what happens in our lives when our desires grow out of their God-given boundaries. This is what happens when Paul is talking about, you know, their God is their stomach. It's this picture of your desire becoming, your appetites for things becoming things that you bow before. And they wreak havoc in your life. Let's look at the pics now. This is, these are from Germany from last year. They had some absolutely horrible flooding um, that just was just, uh, I mean, I think 100 and something people. I don't know what the final count was, but uh, hundreds, 120 people, I think, died in, in this flooding. Okay, so too will your desires wreak havoc in your life and in others when they grow out of God-given boundaries. This is what happens when we ignore God's wisdom when it comes to our instincts and appetites, right? So sex, 
wonderful thing unless it grows out of God-given boundaries. Games, movies, entertainment, leisure, anything, y'all, wonderful things. Here we go, patriotism. Dude, it's a good thing. Patriotism is a good thing unless it grows out of healthy boundaries and begins dominating every other thing, right? A desire to love and be loved. That's a good thing, isn't it? I want to be loved. I want to give love. It's a good thing unless it moves to an ultimate place in your life in which now you are willing to lie and cheat and manipulate so that people will love you. That's a good thing. Grown to an un- a desire to be accepted. All right, don't be like, I don't care if people... Yes, you do. I mean, come on, right? Like, we all want to be accepted. We all want to be loved, right? It's a good thing. God gave you that. It's such a good thing unless it becomes an ultimate thing where you begin hiding things and becoming a hypocrite and doing and saying and wearing silly things so that people will like you, right? You know what I'm talking about. Eating food you don't like, you know, because you want to be liked, right? All of these things, good things, can become destructive forces when we allow them to grow to unhealthy places. Y'all, anything can become a God in your life, anything that you bow before right? Fasting helps us put the boundary places back in good places, like Psalm 16 talks about, right? Boundary places fall. So in our scripture, we read Mark 4. Jesus talks about those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, think about what he's saying. Come on, put your, keep, stay with me. The cares of the world, are the, is caring about what's going on in the world a bad thing? It, I don't think, you're right? Are you concerned about whether or not you're going to pay your bills next, week, next month? Yeah. Okay. These are not bad things. Okay. Now, deceitfulness of riches. Okay. Well, that's a deceitful right. But are riches a bad thing? Does Bible call the money bad? No, it doesn't. No. In fact, it says the, the love of money can be a root of all. Money's not a bad thing. Right? And what about this? Desires for other things. That's not a sin. That's not sin. And yet, it can choke out the fruitfulness of God's word in your life. Are we chatting now? Is this making sense? Having concerns for your provisions is not a bad thing unless it becomes an ultimate thing in your life and in your thinking. And now it's destroying parts of you, isn't it? Now it's overwhelming you and you're crippled with anxiety because the concerns that you're carrying have grown out of a health. Dude, fear is a good thing. God gave you fear. Like, I'm afraid of lightning for a good reason. I'm afraid of great, like, deathly afraid of great white sharks so much that I won't even get in the gulf, right? Like, there's a, you're just like, well, there it is. It's gone out of a healthy proportion, right? Actually, one of my things I'm trying to, I'm trying to do, you can apparently like snorkel in the American, the uh, Georgia Aquarium. You could like pay money to get in there, and, and like that's like I gotta do that because I'm terrified, like irrationally terrified of sharks. Like when I saw Jaws for the first time, this is not my notes. When I saw Jaws for the first time, like as a kid, I was afraid to get in the bath. I was like, Jaws is gonna bust through this tile and eat me alive. Okay, that's fear. My point. Sorry, we have a fear of heights. Well, you have a fear of heights for a good reason, right? Like God's trying to say, don't get close to this. Okay, it's a good thing unless it grows out to an irrational, <laughs> disproportionate thing where you can't stand up on a, a, you know, I'm terrified, right? Guys, boom, there it is. Good things, God-given things. Grow out of healthy boundaries, become destructive things in our life. Fasting is how we say to those good things, right? It's how we say to common graces that we all, to this far you can come and no farther. 
like God said to the ocean. This far you shall come and no farther, right? It's often, Jesus says, y'all, in this thing we just read, it's often not sin, but simple, sometimes innocent desires that enter in and choke out the world. So we, when we say to things like entertainment, okay, social media, your phone, <laughs> sex, food, jobs, desire for wealth, desire for security, desire for rest, desire for leisure, for pleasure, for entertainment, for physical health, all good things, all good things. But to say to all these things, this far you shall come and no farther. John Piper says of Mark 4:19, the desires for other things, these are not evils in themselves. They are not vices. These are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes, coffee and gardening, reading and decorating, traveling and investing, TV watching and internet surfing, online shopping, <laughs> exercising. Like I can you, can, you you ever met that person that's just like, oh, I'm obsessed with CrossFit, right? Right? It's a hell, great thing. It's a good thing. But now it's like, oh, it's who you, you know, whatever. You know, right? You know how you can know if people do CrossFit? Because they'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Collecting, talking, talking. All of these things, good things, but can become deadly substitutes for God. Therefore, when I say that the root of Christian fasting, this is John Piper from this book. I'm going to read a little bit more. Well, therefore, when I say that the root of Christian fasting is the hunger of homesickness for God, I mean that we will do anything and go without anything if by any means we might protect ourselves from what he calls the deadening effects of innocent delights. Deadening effects of innocence delight. Let me read a little bit more, then we'll... The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality, broken right. We drink every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. Luke 14, right? The greatest adversary to the love of God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace the appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. In other words, we make good, right, innocent things into sin when we elevate them to godlike positions in our heart. Richard Foster says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus. We cover up what is inside us with food and other things. Fasting is how we check ourselves. It's how we find out uh, what we really think our true source of spiritual life is. And it reveals those good things that might be exerting unhealthy control over our hearts and lives. Fasting is how we say in the most practical, tangible way, I will not be enslaved by anything. You're not proving anything to God. It's your appetites that need to be spoken to. It's only when we remove those self-medicating, 
methods, these coping mechanisms, do we find out how much we really relied on them in the first place, right? I, just go without your phone for a day. I dare you, right? right? Get off social media. I dare you. Huh? Unplug from the 24-hour news cycle and see what happens in your heart and soul. Huh? Foster goes on. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they're within us, they're going to come up during fasting. And he calls this a wonderful benefit <laughs> for the follower of Christ, right? Fasting from things like entertainment or social media or food or sex is how we ruthlessly go after the things in our hearts that have drifted out of healthy boundaries. And by withdrawing good things, beg God himself to fill us. Hmm? It's how we say with real action, I love you, God, more than your gifts. Hmm? I want and treasure and want to worship the giver over the gifts, right? Because very often we find buried underneath all our pressing desires a hunger for God. And the reason some of us have no recognizable desire for God is not because you've drunk deeply of his spirit and are satisfied, but because you've stuffed yourself with his gifts. And when your soul is stuffed with small things, there's no room for the great Fasting is a way we make room. So where in your life are you allowing innocent delights to grow to unhealthy places? Where are you allowing things like Facebook or Instagram or watching TV or video games to be the, listen to my language here, default preoccupation of your mind and heart? De like muscle memory. Tell me the same muscle memory. Huh? Over and over and over, the default preoccupation of your mind and heart, right? Your desire for sex, desire for sleep, desire for work, all these things, wonderful gifts of God. But when they grow to a place of dominance, when they begin to dominate the landscape of your life, man, listen, it's the small foxes in the vineyard. Hmm? It's not often the big, obvious sins that you and everyone else can see from miles away. It's the small ones that happily live under the cover of the leaves that are ruining why there's no fruit in your life, man. And it's the things we've often justified that are really not sins at all, that according to the Bible can strangle out your spiritual life. Like, you, see, you know strangle? Yeah. Like arm, you know? Like can't breathe, he's out. Good things. Good things that have become dominant in your life. So no matter how this is landing on you today, no matter how relevant it feels or doesn't feel to you, okay, uh, we all have an aversion to this, and here's why. When you go mucking around in places like this, it tends to wake up sleeping giants of our character flaws. Sleeping giants of your character flaws that you would prefer to ignore, that most of us have learned to live with and have said this is just the way it is. And when you put your hand to the plow, what's a plow do? Tills up the soil. Huh? When you put your hand to the plow, we often find vines under the surface of the soil, and we never knew it. I have um, English ivy that has completely dominated behind my fence at my house, growing, covering trees. I mean, going up like 100-foot trees, just completely covered, right? And for years, y'all, years, I have been hacking away at this. Like, I've tried chemicals that would kill everyone in this room. I've... I've I've tried to weed whack it all, boom, grows back. I've done, I mean, so, so at, at this point, I'm like gloves on, 
ripping stuff out, right? Just going for it, right? And I, re- I mean, I was just going for it the other day, just pulling up vines. And uh, what would happen is when I would pull up one vine, literally the entire floor would seem to raise because that one vine was not one vine. It was a network of 50 vines all connected to one another, right? Like nothing can grow behind my house, right? Like I just planted my first little patch of grass that I'm so stoked about. My wife's going to kill it later, grow a garden there, right? Right? (laughs) This is how good things grow to unmanageable places. It's subtle. It's under the surface until it's not. And then it's choking out the possibility of anything else growing up there. And if you, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, right, uh, are able not only to see your character flaws, but start addressing it, it may take years of hacking away at that. It may take years of pulling up weed after weed that has been growing under the surface, the subterranean of your life that you've been tolerating for years and years. And it might be why the word of God seems dead to you today. Not because you've you read it all before and it's old news. No, but because other desires, good things, are choking out its ability to produce fruit in you. Can you hear these things? Hmm? Let's stand and pray.